Director of Education and Member Engagement here at OLA. And today I'm very excited to welcome Laura Carter to Library Land Loves. We're going to be talking, we know that Freedom to Read Week has ended, but we're continuing the conversation and we're going to talk about some issues that are relevant to libraries right now. Um, Laura Carter is the Chief Librarian and CEO at the Kingston Frontenac Public Library. Prior to her appointment as CEO, Laura held a variety of roles at KFPL, including Director Branch Experience, where her portfolio included the library's physical and digital collections. And as an avid reader, some of Laura's favorite books have been challenged or banned, which really, I hope that we all have favorite books that have been challenged and banned. Otherwise, we'd have really boring lives. So thanks for joining us today. We'll be right back with Laura. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Michelle. So today, uh, thank you for joining us, first of all, because um, I, I wanted to have this conversation last week during Freedom to Read Week, and it didn't work out, but I think it's still a really worthwhile topic. Um, I know when we were kind of brainstorming ideas of a podcast to do for Freedom to Read Week, we came up with a number of really boring ideas. <laughs> um, and so I hope that Library people in general know that, you know, this is an ongoing issue that's still relevant to libraries. But something that comes up, has come up, I know, a lot recently for people um, where challenges have come in and they've not been quite sure how to respond to them. So um, I thought that that would be a great place to start today and to talk to you about. And I know you've been living in this world so you're uh, keen to talk about challenges right yeah and I think as a as a profession we'll you know contact each other and say oh hey this has come in and and you know how do I deal with it or has anyone dealt with a challenge mm -hmm. on, on this book or, or this particular topic but we don't often talk about it in public because I think we fear partly mm -hmm. sort of public scrutiny of of our, our processes and, and having those difficult decisions discussions, those difficult discussions in the public sphere. So uh, I'm here. I'm going to keep it pretty general rather than try and talk about a specific yeah. item. Although, uh, you know, a shout out to uh, Bridge to Terabithia, which may have been the first sort of challenged book that I, I read as a kid. Um, and usually mm. if we're doing a, a Freedom to Read Week-a-thon, that's one that I, I kind of go to and, and pull from. It's still one of my favorites, uh, my favorite books. So yeah, I thought I'd go through some of the steps in the process when a book gets challenged and maybe some things uh, as library staff and particularly I think public library staff, although uh, school libraries uh, may want to consider as well um, what, what you do when you get a complaint. Absolutely, that's great. I think it's really timely and really helpful to be having these discussions in public so that people understand what everyone's having to go through and the various ways that people are responding. So, all right, so we have a top five 
it's not even a top. It's a, it's a five steps or five, five things that happen in libraries when challenges occur. Is that right? I tried to break it down and keep it in your, your top five theme. So, um, five sort of key steps in the process and also things you want to consider uh, in terms of your collection development policy or your, your procedures pertaining to uh, books that are, are, or movies or, or audiobooks uh, that are challenged. So if you want to okay. jump in, um, typically it starts with a, with a written complaint. Um, mm -hmm. So most libraries do require, if you want uh, an item to be removed or considered for removal, that, that a, a formal written complaint is received. We get a lot of comments at the desk. Some of it's just like, oh, have you read this? Oh, it was terrible. I didn't like it. A and that's mm -hmm. just someone ex you know, saying, hey, let's have a conversation about a book. But sometimes we get the, you know, the, this shouldn't be in the library. I can't believe you have this. And it, it takes us a lot of work to evaluate an item for removal or reclassification. So we do need the patron to, to put some thought into the, the process to ask for it to be reconsidered in the library's collection. So I've seen two approaches mm -hmm. to this. Um, our approach in Kingston is that we do have a written form that's in the policy. Uh, and then the other approach I've seen is that uh, just an instruction in the policy to contact a staff member, either usually the collections librarian or a manager or perhaps the CEO to um, explain what, what the objection is. So I think there's pros and cons to, to each approach. With our form, it, it does make it quite simple for you to say, I want it removed. This is what I didn't like. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we also ask what, what kind of harm or what we think, um, what the patron thinks that the, the item is going to do. So what the outcome of reading, listening, viewing the item will do. So it, it, does, um, it does give us a good snapshot of what the complaint about the item is. And mm -hmm. it makes it clear what kind of information we're looking for. Um, with the, hey, just contact us, it does give you a chance to have a little bit of a conversation perhaps with the patron before they kind of get, I want this, I want this, this is, you know, this is the terrible things that will happen as a result of watching this movie. Um, so there's, there's pros and cons certainly in, uh, in both approaches. So in Kingston, we do ask if they've read the entire thing uh, what they mm -hmm. would like to happen with the item, and uh, specifically what they find objectionable about the material. So is that process anonymous then for the person making the complaint? No, they do have to put their name. No. Um, we ask name, you know, contact information. We do not ask uh, for a library card number. I have seen some mm -hmm. libraries forms where you have to log in to actually access the form mm -hmm. and, and submit it. And I'm assuming that they would have a, a print form that people could, could submit, but they do require uh, a library card, which is interesting. Um, I sort of talk about the increasing um, public nature of appeals as well. And um, it does mean that people do have to be in your community and a member of the library. Right. So if there's a sort of a large social media campaign, perhaps then it, it may um, head off um, that a little bit. Mm -hmm. It also, I, I would assume, assures that you're responding to the needs of your community and not perhaps, you know, pressures more at large. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, and, you know, again, it does take uh, a lot of effort to, um, we, we do read, watch, or listen to the, the item in its entirety, which can be mm-hmm. pretty quick if it's a picture book that's being challenged. But if it's a, a pretty mm-hmm. lengthy novel or nonfiction work, that, that can be a, a large investment in time. And it could be one staff member that's doing that. But if it's uh, a larger library where they do a committee, uh, it could be uh, four or five staff who are investing the, the time to read an item. Mm-hmm. And while that challenge is happening, I'm assuming the item is still in circulation. It's not being removed while the, the challenge is occurring. That yeah, that's correct. And and that typically, yeah. I've seen that in libraries, policies or, or procedures or or not. But yeah, no, no, um, nothing happens to the item until a, a final decision is made on it. All right. Anything else with that point? No, I think uh, ready to move on to number two, which is Let's move on uh, to number two. What uh, what do you want to happen uh, to an item? So um, typically people will ask, I found in my experience, and we usually get between, I'd say we get usually at least one uh, request for reconsideration a year and um, sort of three or four has probably been the most number of items in, in a single year that have been challenged here. Um, so they usually want uh, a warning label put on the item Mm-hmm. to say, hey, this contains offensive uh, language or, or themes, uh, or, um, and this is sort of a whole other thing that we could talk about, uh, but, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that uh, reflect the attitudes of their time, so things that are racist because that was what some people thought at the time. Uh, they want mm-hmm. things usually moved from a children's collection or a teen collection and reclassified to an adult collection because they deem it too mature for children. Uh, or in that category as well, moved to some sort of restricted stacks, um, which in sort of a modern public library, we really don't have a, you know, a collection of sorted items behind the, behind the desk. <laughs> uh, and, and then finally, uh, removed from the collection entirely is, is also a common um, request. Um, so I think this is something that's important to get up front when you're dealing with a challenge mm-hmm. because it does inform how you review the item. If, if you're reviewing to say, okay, is this appropriate for the picture book collection or you know, the middle grade sort of readers, versus, um, you know, should this be in the library at all? And again, it's another time to have a conversation with a patron to say, um, you know, explain maybe why labeling can be problematic. So offensive for you may not be offensive for me. And and to have these these types of things explicitly laid out in your policy. So we do have a section specifically on labeling in our policy. And we also have uh, the children um, sort of rights and and parental responsibilities laid out too. So we don't restrict children from borrowing. They can borrow anything in the library and it's up to the parent or guardian to monitor what they're doing. Same with internet here. We don't filter our internet um, and I know some libraries do. Mm -hmm. So you may be, you know, the the parent or the the person may not be fully understanding what what your guidelines are. and, And so having that conversation can also just kind of head off a challenge, but gives you an opportunity to have a bit more of an informal dialogue rather than a, a written sort of formal response to a challenge. The, the issue of labeling is such an interesting one. And I imagine, I mean, I imagine it's part of the policy of when that issue gets revisited or when 
labeling or the labels that are used kind of get updated is that is that correct well they want typically when we're talking about labeling they it, it is like a, a warning label slapped on an item to say right. this contains offensive material or even um things and i have talked to some other libraries recently um more and more we're seeing you know with with moves to um towards truth and reconciliation particularly with collections like our Western collections, which often have pretty negative portrayals of, of indigenous people. We actually, I've heard of a few libraries that have signs near those collections to say, this is not you know, what the library believes. And again, most collections say, you know, we don't endorse the content of materials in our collection. We, we may buy it, but it does mm -hmm. not reflect the library's actual values. A and similarly for, for that, and make a, a very public sort of statement there. But with a collection of, you know, even with a smaller collection, if you think the size of Toronto, how could they possibly put a, a warning label on mm -hmm. any material that anyone could possibly deem offensive? So we somewhat deal with that in classifying our materials. So if it's in the adult collection, mm -hmm. you can reasonably assume, uh, you know, that there could be offensive language, uh, violence, sex, th those sorts of things. It's, a, it's such a tricky conversation too, because I think in many cases, the public assumes the library has so much more interaction per title than we really do. I mean, the amount of work that we rely on wholesalers and you know other vendors to help when it comes to cataloging and processing and labeling is vital to getting collections in and out of libraries um, and so that's a really interesting conversation to think about is you know if if libraries were to go more in the direction of you know i'm thinking of even you know disney plus mm. where there's so many labels for every selection and communities audiences you know, people partaking in this pop culture um, seem to be expecting that more and more. And what does that mean for libraries and who do, who would we rely on for, for labeling if we decided to go in that direction? It's, you know, it's just such an, it's so fraught with, with challenges. It, it also somewhat brings up the, the challenge of our third party and, and consortial relationships. So if you're in mm -hmm. a, a cloud library or overdrive, um, consortium now your patrons have access to uh, items that other libraries have selected so should you even wish not to buy something for your library or actively decide to remove it there may not be a way to prevent your patrons from stumbling onto that content now those are, have been more curated by other librarians but you have uh, services where you are just licensing the service and not actually selecting any of the content. So think Canopy, mm -hmm. Hoopla, uh, those sorts of services, which they have varying levels of, of how much control you have over preventing a title from, from being um, displayed to your patrons or not. So um, mm. we do not have, I don't think, the same role that we used to in being that sort of mm -hmm. gatekeeper to information. I mean, you could get it on the mm -hmm. internet, uh, and certainly people can increasingly buy things with ease, but then, you know, that's another conversation in terms of then if the library yeah. doesn't carry it, there are people who can buy it and people who cannot, so who for has sure. access to it. But um, that has come up for us recently in terms of um, the content in, in some of the services that we subscribe to. 
and, and yeah. I have seen now in some libraries collection development policy sort of an explicit statement about that something again I'd, I'd recommend mm -hmm. that people consider all right number three so you've gotten this written complaint you know mm -hmm. what they want you to do with it what do you do now um, so some some libraries have this laid out in their collection development policy or in an associated procedure uh, some are silent uh, but you really should know before you get a challenge how you'll handle it who will handle it uh, what your timelines are and then um, and then who's going to respond to the patron and how that's going to be done so typically you know, we've sort of said, well, you know, we'll mail a formal letter. Well, a lot of complaints now come in by email. Um, so all of those sorts of little, um, you know, sort of nitpicky procedural things, they're actually quite important because you do want to make sure that you are consistent in handling these. So some may seem pretty easy to you. Uh, let's use one that we've had in the past. Um, sort of a complaint that a, a children's book has themes that, that that person deemed too mature for that level. And, and so then we go back to our policy and we say, okay, you know, it's your responsibility to monitor what your children, you know, borrows, your child borrows from the library. And here's mm -hmm. where our policy says that, and we reviewed it and, and we think it's okay. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, all of this, you know, sort of, I'm not presupposing that we always keep and we're always sort of defending an item in the collection. We, we do sometimes reclassify. Uh, like you say, we, we rely on vendors and, and um, you know, even Amazon's sort of like, hey, this is a, a children's book. And sometimes we're like, eh, maybe it's actually more, more for teens. Um, but you, you might get a bunch of those sort of in a row and you think, yeah, okay, we're good. We know how this comes. And then you may end up with a bit of a hot potato on your hands. So it's really important that you follow that same procedure, whether it's, you think it's, it's sort of a simple thing or you perceive it to be a little bit more difficult because um, it, it could end up getting appealed or, or publicly challenged. So you wanna make sure that there has been some some rigor in your process for uh, for evaluation. Um, so one thing that, that's come up recently that I thought was interesting, and you have to be kind of big enough to be able to do this in terms of having enough staff, but um, one library has, uh, and I, I asked a bunch of libraries for their procedures where they weren't online, but I promised not to, uh, not to call anybody out sort of thing. So uh, keeping it mostly anonymous, but one, one library does have a, a, a committee that reviews uh, challenges and specifically mm -hmm. states that it, it does not go to the selector who purchased the item. So that gives you a little bit of separation and, and maybe a little bit of impartiality when you're reviewing it. Um, I mean, there's lots of ways that, that books do come in. It could be a, a patron suggestion or, or purchased by, um, by one of our vendors. But uh, I did th think mm -hmm. that was interesting and something to consider potentially for libraries going forward. Um, so you want to yeah, look at, sure. um, at also if potentially you're going to consult any sort of outside experts. So generally, as public librarians, we're not subject specialists. Uh, especially in, in smaller or, or mid-sized libraries. So if the challenge is, is surrounding sort of specific 
scientific or subject content in the item, you may want to consider building that into your policy as a as a possibility, but then also consider the impact on the timeline that that could have. So we do mm-hmm. uh, in our policy lay out a timeline. Uh, we are looking actually at at lengthening it because it, it's quite short if you do have a, a lengthy review. Um, and also if, if the item's out and you're gonna wait for it to be returned, it's not always possible to buy a new copy of something um, or if you, need to, if you do need to buy something and you need to wait for that to come in. So all these little mm-hmm. sort of detail-oriented things uh, in the third step as you, as you review an item. You know, and I think that, like you said, having that, that process laid out, is, it's helpful in terms of transparency for your community to know you know, that they're not being treated any differently than anyone else if they, you know, that everyone has to go through this process. But it also must be so helpful for your staff because then they have, you know, something to stand by where where they know that it's not reliant on them to make a decision in the moment, that they know what the process is and they can kind of communicate that to maybe, you know, a very passionate or angry person at the desk in front of them at that moment. Yeah, and especially for frontline staff. So, um, you know, it's been brought to my attention by people that I've talked to recently that not everybody thinks about this as much as I do or as much as other librarians might. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, hey guys, it's Freedom to Read Week. Did you know? They're like, yeah, we don't care. Um, So (laughs) how lucky for them. you, You may have hundreds of frontline staff in your organization who may have never dealt with a, a book challenge before. So it's important mm-hmm. uh, for transparency for the public, certainly, but also um, because your, your staff may not come up against this. So they can explain the process to the public and um, everybody is, if you'll pardon the overused uh, you know, expression, on the same page about how things will, mm-hmm. uh, will go. Yeah, no, I think that, that that's just, it's so helpful because the worst or worst case scenario or the last thing that you want is for a, a frontline staff person to feel like they have to make a moral judgment on something in the moment or, you know, or, or uh, you know, to agree, yes, this book is awful. We should get rid of it. Throw it in the garbage. Or they have a process to rely on, I think is, is the important point here. Yeah, and, and we've yeah. taken to including this, um, as an interview question for both internal and external staff to get a sense of, of what their understanding is and, and sort of, you know, how much mm-hmm. training we need to do. But um, it, it's sometimes a good conflict kind of question. You know, come on, someone comes in and slams a book down and says, this is garbage, you shouldn't have this. And you're like, oh my God, what do I do? And, and to know that there is a, a policy and yeah, that you shouldn't pass yeah. any judgment on on their uh, concerns that you should sort of listen and let them know it will be taken seriously. And if someone says, you know, oh yes, you know, no, the library will keep this at all costs, then the patron obviously doesn't feel like their concerns have been heard at all. All right, great number three. Shall we move on number four? So going again back to the collection development policy, it should lay out what you consider when you're adding an item to the collection. And you should go back to these when you're looking at reviewing an item that someone has complained about. So we have, you know, again, this seems pretty obvious, but in the stress of a, of a challenge, it, it can be something that, that you forget. So what, what kind of things do you consider when you're selecting an item? And and these range from super specific, um, 
statements. Um, uh, let's see, I grabbed one from somebody's policy. Source materials and thoughtful interpretations which document light or shed light on the past as one sort of area where people may acquire materials. Um, and, and then to something that's that's pretty vague, and I would argue we actually need to improve, and this is from our collection, uh, it just says need. And so whose needs, the libraries, mm -hmm. the communities, what does that mean? A and I would caution you to really, this sounds again a little bit silly, but really understand what you mean by your selection criteria, because again, I'm looking at ours and I'm like, I, I don't actually know what we need by need. And those sorts of vague statements can be used against you or used mm -hmm. to fight against uh, a decision that you've made. So you'll say, no, we, we think this actually should stay in the collection for these reasons. And people can go back to the policy and say, okay, well, uh, accuracy uh, and um, you know clarity of presentation can, can be another one. And they say, well, this isn't accurate because of this. Um, so pay attention to those selection criteria. Make sure you, you're clear on what they mean. Um, make sure you're clear that it's not an exhaustive list, that every box of those doesn't need to be checked to include an item in the collection. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have, one could argue, some, some real stinkers um, in our collection. And again, that's all, it's all so subjective, <laughs> but um, mm -hmm. they may be popular. So you may think that X book is terrible, poorly written and but someone else may think it's it's the best thing ever so popular demand is usually one of those things that 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 comes mm -hmm. in there but that's one of the first things you would look at you're evaluating an item okay does this meet our selection criteria mm -hmm. and then we also look at things like the credentials of the author uh, the publisher um, maybe we take a, a broad look at scholarship in the field, although you know that sometimes gets us a little too far down the down the rabbit hole. But um, mm -hmm. if you, you know, a quick Google can alert you to things where we probably should have taken things out of the collection. Sort of think, uh, you know, something like uh, a book by Jenny McCarthy on autism and vaccinations. Mm -hmm. Probably, if anybody has those, you probably should you know, take them out. Um, so mm -hmm. there are things that we routinely do weed because they have gone out of, you know, the theories have been disproven. Um, and so sometimes mm -hmm. people bring those to us and, we, and it's not a challenge. It's like, hey, I don't think you should, you know, maybe have this. And we say, oh yeah, you know, that, that has been disproven. So not every, um, not every, hey, you know, I'm not sure you should have this in the collection actually turns into a, a book challenge too, I would say. Sometimes mm -hmm. in our weeding, we do miss uh, some outdated materials, health, science stuff where, where knowledge has, has advanced. But so you, you may want to take a quick look when you're looking at things to see, okay, you know, is this still uh, an actually credible theory? And what a challenging conversation, though, to continue having with your communities about, um, you know, the role of the library and the collection and that your library doesn't need to have every book. In fact, it's not ever going to have every book. And, you know, the expectations of the people in your community in terms of what you're going to have on the shelf and um, what they should be allowed to see there or to borrow from you is an important conversation and important for, you know, 
to have on an ongoing basis, I think, because of these ongoing changes that occur in, you know, our knowledge of autism and the science behind various, you know, ailments and conditions. And, um, but that requires that conversation. It's not just, a, you know, a decision that's happening in a back room. It's, it's making sure that people are aware of, of, uh, what's going on in the world. And it's interesting too, because we have recently done a, a major renovation here, which required us to downsize our collections a little bit. So we had a bunch of stuff in the basement that might be familiar to, to other libraries and a, a really actually great collection sort of from the 50s, 60s and 70s that we had to sort of look at a lot of nonfiction stuff. Um, and, you know, sometimes as librarians, we keep things because we might need them someday. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and so it's, uh, you know, some of that stuff was outdated, but, oh, you know, may have historical value. Or what if I want to know what, you know, a, a watch looks like in, you know, whatever time. So you're right. We can't have everything. And we do keep or continue to rebuy things, um, you know, Mein Kampf is one that gets trotted out quite often when we're talking about freedom of expression and, and that the library doesn't endorse the, the contents of books. So it's important to still have access to historically important books like that, um, but you have to also balance that with um, things that may actually provide uh, inaccurate or, um, you know, theories that have been disproven. So it, it's, and that's where, again, the request for labeling sometimes still comes in. So if we're holding on to things because we think they do have some enduring value, but obviously, um, you know, no one's going to hopefully, well, actually I shouldn't say that, um, use MindConf because they know it's going to use MindConf as a, as a roadmap for, for how you should lead, but, you know, recent events prove otherwise, unfortunately. But so it, it is, a. you're right, it's a, an important ongoing dialogue with library staff, with the community, and with our board, mm-hmm. which sort of mm-hmm. uh, actually segues nicely into the, uh, the next yeah. uh, point, which is once you've sort of, you know, evaluated the item and, and made that, that initial decision, usually it's at a staff level, um, then there is the potential for appeal. So one, um, mm-hmm. you should clearly outline in your policy um, or in your response to the to the patron if you're saying no, we're gonna we're gonna retain this item in the collection. Here's our reasons, but you may appeal. Um, then that appeal could potentially go go public, and a lot of people I think are afraid of that. And certainly, it's it's an extraordinarily stressful thing to have these conversations in in public and often they they are about controversial topics like nobody is is challenging typically a a run-of-the-mill you know cookbook or um, you know a a generic picture book they they usually have significant themes Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so it's really important uh to to have these conversations with your board sort of on an ongoing basis and make sure that the library's stance on intellectual freedom is outlined somewhere. Um, so for us, it's embedded in our collection development policy. Uh, so we uh, endorse the Ontario Libraries, 
the Ontario Library Association's statement on the intellectual rights of the individual. Some other places do, um, there's an IFLA statement, there's a CFLA statement, so there's lots of lots of statements, and, and that's a sort of, a, a, not gonna, yeah, I, I guess an easy way for the library to clearly state their support of intellectual mm -hmm. freedom. A lot of work has gone on to, into those statements by a lot of great different minds. You don't need to, to reinvent that wheel. Um, or uh, increasingly libraries have their own, uh, a standalone policy on intellectual freedom and freedom of expression so that it is up front and center. It's its own policy rather than embedded in another policy like, like the collection development policy. Having those conversations with your board during Freedom to Read Week is a, is a good time. Having ongoing updates around items that are being challenged or just sort of values of, of the organization. Um, we have freedom mm -hmm. of expression embedded in the values um, of the library. So beyond just a, an endorsement of the statement, it's actually in the organization's values. So having having those, those public discussions um, is an opportunity, again, to talk about the library's values and the community's values. So even though the library says, you know, we think we need to have this book, which is offensive to some or some people uh, would rather us not have, it is an opportunity to have a conversation around that topic and to make the library's position in terms of being welcoming and inclusive clear. Yeah, I think your point about, you know, having this as part of your regular conversations with staff and with the board are, are so important. I mean, the board are your members of your community, your representatives from your community, right? So um, so that's such an important, they're such important ambassadors to have out there. Um, they almost have to go to, you know, mini library school to, to catch up on all of these these stances and uh, and situations within libraries, for sure. And, and I think that's that's part of the, the worry. Well, one, you know, having the, the board, you know, as CEO be my boss, then people always think, well, I'm going to go mm -hmm. to the board and, you know, basically I'm going to complain to your boss about you. And it, that it's not as scary, I think, as people think that that threat is uh, because mm -hmm. you're kind of constantly um, having those conversations through reports or, you know, dialogue with your board chair or the, the board executive anyway to let them know kind of what's happening in, in the organization. But they are, as you point out, the, the citizen sort of, um, you know, oversight of, of the library. So it's, I think, important for them to have those discussions in public and, and and we have our sort of professional commitment to freedom of of expression and, and we were talking about the theme of this podcast or the topic um that that's a whole other conversation that i think the profession needs mm -hmm. to have um mm -hmm. and where we stand on sort of freedom of expression or or bust basically in, in some in some mm -hmm. circles but the they're coming at it uh, hopefully informed by you on a regular basis on the importance of freedom of expression mm -hmm. but with their own life experiences their own thoughts on both intellectual freedom and whatever the topic is that the the book is about or the item that that's being challenged so it mm -hmm can be scary to have that that discussion but I think also very productive and also um, a good chance to hear 
not only from the board in terms of their point of view, but the public and and their thoughts mm-hmm. on either this particular item or freedom uh, to read in general. What did your library do for Freedom to Read Week this year? Now that we're technically recording this on the last day of Freedom to Read Week, did you anything do anything differently this year or because you were virtual? Uh, so we did put some stuff out on social media. We did book displays mm-hmm. in most of the branches. It can be more difficult in, in some of the smaller branches where we don't have a lot of the materials, but we usually at least do the poster and um, mm-hmm. and and grab a few things. There's lots of books that have been challenged for various reasons, so mm-hmm. usually you can find a few. Uh, and, and we did put a post on on the main sort of blog on our website. Typically, we would do um, some sort of readathon or some sort of you know event. Which isn't mm-hmm. to say that you couldn't do that with with a sort of a, a Zoom readathon, but I think we're all getting a little uh, Zoom fatigue. Uh, so we we did a mm-hmm. little bit more of a a passive uh, a passive approach this year, but we definitely still wanted to to market. Well, for those who aren't aware. Um Freedom to Read Week has a website that you can go to with lots of resources and articles. And uh, we just posted an interview with our Freedom of Expression champion this year, Desmond Cole. And there's lots of challenged title lists, as I mentioned, a poster um, created by this year, a great artist, Michael LaForge. And so I encourage you, if you haven't gone to the site recently, to go and take a look. It's actually a brand new look this year. Um, So there's lots of different tools and resources there for you to take a look at and uh, hopefully incorporate into your own displays throughout the year or uh, when Freedom to Read Week comes back around next year. Well, thank you so much for your thoughts today, Laura. I think this is really helpful. Uh, I really appreciate it because, you know, when we were talking about this in the lead up, the reality really struck that There's not a lot out there right now from public librarians talking about this issue and talking about really publicly about how they deal with these issues and, you know, challenges that they've found professionally and working through them or, um, you know, how how the issue has evolved over years. There's an article on the website what to do when the censor comes that uh, is interesting to look at. And I think some of the language is a little bit dated now, but it's interesting to see how the issue has evolved and how our thinking around intellectual freedom and freedom to read week has kind of changed and responded to, um, to our values and our communities over the years. So I encourage you to, to go ahead and look at that, but thank you again for your time today. Thank you. And thanks everyone for listening. We would love to know what you did for Freedom to Read Week, so please make sure you're posting that on your social media with the hashtag Freedom to Read as well. Thanks everyone for joining us. That's it for today's chapter. We'll see you next week.